0: where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about helping stuck souls and the unique ministry of Father Nathan Castle. I'm Dom Bethanelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Suppose that you go to sleep one night, and you have a dream of someone that you don't know who dies in a horrible way. This dream seems different than normal ones, And you come to think that the soul of the person who died is calling out to you for help. What would you do? That's the situation that confronted Dominican friar, Father Nathan Castle. He began receiving dreams of just such souls. So what did Father Castle do? Did he find a way to help them? And what should we make of his experiences? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. Jimmy, what do we need to say to begin? Today's
1: mystery involves a prayer ministry conducted by a Dominican priest named Father Nathan Castle, in which he helps souls in the afterlife. I'll be interviewing Father Castle later in the program, but first I wanted to give you a conceptual overview of what he does in this work. Basically, in his dreams, he learns of souls that need help. Some of these souls seem stuck, and he gives them a kind of counseling to help them move beyond whatever is holding them back so that they can move on to another stage. Put in Catholic theological terms, these souls would be at a particular stage in the process of purgatory, perhaps an early stage and one in which they're only making slow progress. But at some point, they're almost ready to move to the next stage, and that's when they come into contact with Father Castle, who helps them move on. Also, I should mention that today is part one of a two-part story. Today, we'll be learning about Father Castle's ministry to souls, and next episode, we'll go into analysis mode and look at it from the faith and reason perspectives.
0: We often think of purgatory as a purely passive process. How does what Father Castle is doing fit with Catholic teaching regarding purgatory?
1: I think it's fundamentally compatible with the idea. We don't really know that much about purgatory or the afterlife in general. The church doesn't really have a lot of teachings on the subject. There has been a common idea among some theologians that purgatory is purely passive. Sometimes these theologians have used the term passio, meaning to passively satisfy rather than actively satisfy God's justice to explain what happens to souls in purgatory. The idea is that after this life, the time for doing things that please God and that he has promised to reward is over. So you can't merit anything anymore in the very limited and qualified sense that humans can ever merit anything. To merit something just means to cooperate with God's grace and do something that he has promised to reward. So the doctrine of merits is the same thing as the doctrine of rewards in other Christian traditions. It just uses different language. And the doctrine of rewards is clearly part of Christian teaching. As St. Paul says in Romans 2,
0: God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. St. Paul is describing rewards for things
1: that we do in this life. Uh, What you do in this life will receive a promised reward from God in the next. And the idea that you can't do anything in the next life that will receive a promised reward has led some theologians to conclude that people must be totally passive in the afterlife. However, this idea is only a theological opinion and not church teaching. And even on the idea that you can't merit anything, that doesn't mean that you can't do anything. Scripture says that we will reign with Christ in the afterlife, and reigning is an activity, so we'll obviously be doing things. But we could look at an even closer analogy to Father Castle's Castle's ministry. Let's take an er earthly example. Suppose that you've got some medical problems, and a generous person, maybe a rich relative, offers to pay your bills for you. So you go to a medical facility, and the doctors lay out treatment options. You won't be paying for any of the treatments you receive. You're not meriting them. But you may still be given choices to make. Do you want this treatment or that? Do you want to do this now or later? What aspect of your condition do you want to work on first? I don't see anything that would prevent souls in purgatory from being offered similar choices. And as we'll see, the souls Father Castle helps report having options like these. They report having choices to make on how to pursue their purification. Here is how the Magisterium currently articulates the way in which our bad actions in life, our sins, can affect us in the next. The Catechism of the Catholic Church states
0: It is necessary to understand that sin has a double consequence. Grave sin deprives us of communion with God and therefore makes us incapable of eternal life, the privation of which is called the eternal punishment of sin. On the other hand, every sin, even venial, entails an unhealthy attachment to creatures, which must be purified either here on earth or after death in the state called purgatory. This purification frees one from what is called the temporal punishment of sin. These two punishments must not be conceived of as a kind of vengeance inflicted by God from without, but as following from the very nature of sin a conversion which proceeds from a fervent charity, can attain the complete purification of the sinner in such a way that no punishment would remain. So, whenever you sin,
1: you develop an unhealthy attachment to a created thing. Like, if you regularly overeat, you develop the habit of having an unhealthy attachment to food. In order to be perfectly happy in heaven, though, you need to be freed from all unhealthy attachments. And if you aren't Perfectly free from unhealthy attachments when you die, well, that's what purgatory is for. It helps you heal from those unhealthy attachments so that you can be perfectly happy. One of the things that regularly comes up in Father Castle's work with souls is that the souls he ministers to tend to have an attachment to something that is holding them back. They've gotten to the point that they're just about ready to let go of the attachment, and Father Castle gives them a kind of counseling. That helps them finally let go of it and move on as we'll see this process gets pictured in some very imaginative ways I assume this is because what the afterlife is actually like goes beyond what we can imagine in this life and so father castle would be receiving information that is accommodated to the perspective of this life much the same way that the biblical prophets picture heaven in and the afterlife in earthly terms like It's like a wedding banquet, and it's got streets of transparent gold, but their visions nevertheless convey an accurate sense of what the next world is like, even if we aren't meant to press every detail literally.
0: How did Father Castle get into doing this work? Well, he was born in
1: Texas in 1956, and he was raised in a Catholic family. His mother taught him to pray for souls in purgatory, and as a boy, Father Castle would read the morning and evening newspaper obituary columns and pray for the people in them. He would pray in a particular way for those who had been members of other churches on the grounds that Catholics knew about purgatory and would be praying for their deceased relatives, but people in the Protestant churches in Texas didn't have the idea of purgatory and wouldn't be praying for their relatives, so he decided he would pray for them, which is, I think, I think is a really great thing for him to have done as a boy. And perhaps it was this concern for souls in purgatory that led to his later ministry. He's written two books on the topic. The first is called Afterlife Interrupted, Helping Stuck Souls Cross Over. And the second book is called Afterlife Interrupted Book Two, Helping Souls Cross Over. He's also working on a third volume. And Father Castle also has a podcast called The Joyful Friar. I received permission from him to use some video clips from The Joyful Friar to give you examples of the kind of work he does. In this clip, Father Castle describes the very first time he received a dream alerting him to a soul that needed help, and that thus began his ministry.
2: What happened was I was on a retreat in northern Arizona with friends of mine. I was um, both participant in the retreat and and giver. Of it, but it was the middle of the night and I was asleep. I was dreaming about finishing a round of golf. The priest I was playing with, we went into the bar. Uh, we, when we got into it, we discovered that we were in the midst of a, a silent auction, a charity event. I noticed that someone had donated a really ugly, awful piece of framed artwork that was on a far wall. I even said to my friend in the dream, "Ooh, who would give that to a charity? It's horrible." but it was so horrible that I felt like I needed to get a better look at it. And as I moved toward it, it moved toward me and it began to move. It was a little video of a man burning to death on the radiator of a car on the grill. He hadn't been in a wreck and he was on fire and he was screaming and I woke up. I felt like I was being awakened from a sound sleep to talk, um, to, to help somebody. So I wrote down quickly what I had just received, and I, I spoke to the person in prayer. I just made the sign of the cross and said a prayer and said, whoever you are, my name is Nathan. I I understand that you've died in a fire on, on a car. I'm praying for you. I'll see what I can do to help. I blessed the person and blessed myself and went back to sleep. In other interviews, I've heard
1: Father Castle say that he interprets the first part of the dream about the golf course bar and the charity auction as just his normal subconscious dreaming. Although I personally wonder if the fact that it was a charity event could signal that there was a soul who needed his charity. However, he got a strong sense from the part of the dream about the man burning to death that it was a signal that there was indeed a soul that needed help. And now
2: that he had received this call for help, he needed to figure out what to do. Several hours later in the morning, um, I'm kind of an early riser normally, and on a retreat, there's always a few more of us who um, meet over coffee in the morning. So I was up kind of early having coffee with whoever was uh, up and about, and my dear friend, who was my prayer partner, was on the retreat, and she was up. So I said, if you wouldn't mind, at a break time, could we go into prayer uh, and pray about this experience I had during the night? She said, well, sure, absolutely.
1: So Father Castle and his prayer partner decided that they would have a prayer session about this mysterious dream he'd had. And here's what happened when they did.
2: Well, we sat still in prayer for a little while, short time. And my friend said, whoever this man is, he really wants to talk to you. Would it be okay if I allow him to? Well, because we had been prayer partners for some time, I knew that she had special spiritual gifts. I said, well, yeah, we've done our protective prayer, and we're in the Lord's service. We're not delving into, you know, spooky mysteries for no reason. We're, we've been asked to help, and so let's help. So um, shortly after that, out of her mouth came the voice of, of a man who said, who the hell does he think he is taking me just when my life is getting good? But in the in the midst of that, I had gotten a little sweet voice in my head or in my ear, however you want to think of it, that said, be careful, this one has not yet chosen the kingdom. I was being told to be careful not to run like the wind. I mean, I, I knew that that um, that some caution was advised, and we had asked for all this spiritual help, so we went with it.
1: So, Father Castle heard a voice saying to be careful because this one has not yet chosen the kingdom. That could mean at least a couple of things. It could mean that the person's destiny was not yet fixed, that they had not yet chosen whether to go to heaven or hell. However, the Christian faith teaches that our destinies are fixed at the moment of death. There isn't a second chance after death. So, we should look at the other interpretation. The statement could also mean that this person hadn't yet chosen to embrace heaven and start moving toward it because something was holding him back. And based on the who the hell does he think he is, message, well, that would suggest what was holding him back, the emotion of anger. And emotions aren't sins, they're just feelings. In other words, this person may have died in a state of grace, but they were also being held back by an overlay of the emotion of anger with God, and they needed to get past this and choose to start moving towards the kingdom. Father Castle's prayer partner sensed that this person really wanted to talk to him. And since they weren't doing this for their own curiosity, they were responding to a call for help from a soul, he decided that they would offer what help they could. Once they began talking with the soul, it emerged that it belonged to a man named Ray.
2: It turned out that Ray had died in 1960 on the hood of a car. I was only four years old at the time, Uh, but he died in a fire. He had been rather stuck in the afterlife because he had been taught about God that God takes people. And who the hell does he think he has taken me just when my life's getting good? So we asked, well, how can we help you? Isn't that what you do? Uh, when I, I'm a counselor. When people make an appointment and you don't really know them, in the first few minutes after you've maybe broken the ice, you say, how can I help you? Tell me what our goals are. Well, he said, my wife, she's dying of cancer. Uh, she's an old woman now. Um, I want to greet her when she passes, but I can't the way I am. So he had died in his early twenties after only a couple of years of marriage. Uh, she later remarried. They had no more children. They had, he had one child and, and, um, this man helped, uh, his former wife raise their son, but now she's dying of cancer in South Carolina. He said, I've been keeping watch over her and I want me to meet greet her when she passes, but I can't the way I am. So that was our goal. How do we help this man? We had no manual to follow, but we just used kind of prayerful good sense, I think. I had to challenge some ideas that he had formed about himself and about God. We talked with him about where he was, and he had created a space that was as close to nothing as he can imagine. He was just mad at the world and mad at God, and wanted everybody to go away and leave him alone. Well, almost everybody did except his guardian angel, who uh, he didn't realize was an angel, but he said there's this guy that stays over on the edge of things. I I told him, I said, you know, cancer's got its own schedule, and he had told me he hadn't done much of anything in 40 years. I said, we're going to have to move fast now, and I don't know that you're going to like it uh, because you've gotten used to the way things are around you. It took us several sessions because we were kind of making our way forward. And we were, my prayer partner, we were both busy people. The fact that you have something spiritual if this order happen doesn't mean every other commitment that you have falls away. We honored all of our other commitments, but we, we met with him for a little while. We told him that we would get back with him soon and we'd pray about how we can help.
1: Ray had completely isolated himself following death, but now he wanted to start meeting people, particularly his wife. So Father Castle decided to help him test the waters of meeting other people by putting him in contact with a soul that had preceded him in death. Ray hadn't had a good relationship with his mother, so he suggested Ray's father.
2: He hadn't known his dad very well. His dad died when he was 10. He, he was kind of afraid of him. I said, well, did you guys ever have a great time together? And he said, yeah, one time we went and looked at cars. So I said, well, what if we asked your dad to come would you be OK? Would you would you be afraid of him? And he said, I don't think so. And so we just said, God, would you please send Ray's dad here? Uh, and in, within 10 seconds, he was going, oh, my God, look over there. I said, I can't see what you see, Ray, but tell me. And he said, well, it's my dad. I said, well, does he look scary? Do you think you're being tricked? He said, no, it's just my dad. I said, well, is it OK for us to leave you guys alone? We'll come. We'll circle back around and see how things went. He agreed to that, and so a few days later, we met up again. This time, uh, we asked about how it went, and he said, well, we went and looked at cars. I said, well, how did, which ones? You know, he died in the early 50s, you died in 1960. Did you try time travel? He said, no, no, we went and looked at the new ones. So I just thought that was so cool. This this father-son reunion happened over uh, a car lot somewhere because they were both kind of car guys. It just seemed really fun to me. Anyhow. Um, I said to him, okay, Ray, now we've broken the ice. You know you can move. You know you can be around other people by just choosing to and asking. I think I know what it is that would prevent you from being with your wife, and and you're not going to like it. And he said, what? And I said, well, I think uh, you just act like a caveman. When you talk about your wife, uh, you act like you own the rights to her and that when she dies, you're going to grab her by her hair and pull her into your cave. I said, remember, she's in her 60s. You knew her for a couple of years out of 60-something. You're you're the only uh, deceased husband, and you're the only person with whom she had a child, so you're huge and you belong in that welcoming party, but I just don't think you're going to be the only one. Could you humble yourself a little bit and be prepared to be with maybe her parents or siblings or people she loved that that she only met after you died? There, There might be a small group. I think you belong there, but I don't think you should be Think of yourself as the whole show. He didn't like it. He grumbled a little bit. But the next time we got together, all of this happened in the span of about three weeks, as I recall. The next time we met up, he said, "Um, big news, my wife passed. And I said, well, wow, that's terrific. Tell us all about it. He said, well, he said, it worked just the way you said. There were some other people there, uh, and I belonged, but you'd have been proud of me. I was the perfect gentleman. So I said, that's terrific, Ray. I knew you had it in, in you all along to be that perfect gentleman. I said, I think now our work is finished. It, it felt like a, a permanent goodbye to a friend that I'd never even laid eyes on. But it was emotional. And I just said, well, Ray, you know, now that you're, you've gotten what you wanted, uh, I think it's time for you to go on to other things. And you don't need us around. But I wonder now that you know how to greet people when they die, they pass over, would you mind keeping an eye on me like you did for your wife? And would you uh, be there for me when it's my turn to pass? And I remember, I'll never forget it. He said, why, sir, I'd be most honored. Just look for the perfect gentleman.
1: So that was the essence of the experience. Ray reported that he had achieved his goal. He'd been able to overcome what he needed to in order to greet his wife. And he'd done that. Father Castle asked Ray if he would greet him upon his own death. And then he bade him farewell. Now, this could have been an unusual, one-off experience that would never happen again. But it wasn't. After his experience with Ray, Father Castle continued to get dreams of other souls that needed help, and so his experience with Ray became a kind of template for helping others. Over time, as they gained experience doing this, Father Castle and his prayer partners, of whom he had several, refined the process so it no longer took multiple sessions the way it did with Ray. They got better at identifying what kind of help the souls needed and better at providing it. But today, when Father Castle has a dream about a soul that needs help, he and a prayer partner have a session in which they ask for contact with the soul, they provide whatever counseling the soul needs, and they help the soul move on to the next stage. Eventually, Father Castle got the idea of doing a book about his ministry, and that became Afterlife Interrupted Book One, which came out in 2018. But Father Castle is concerned about people's privacy. He
2: explains We wanted to use his story publicly uh, in a book, and I just didn't feel right about that without asking his permission. So uh, um, eventually a friend of mine convinced me, let's just go into the Holy Spirit, ask, you know, we're not asking for tomorrow's lottery numbers or we're not up to no good. We're just doing a a simple task. It's yes or no. We won't bother anybody for very long. The question is, would you allow us to use your story? We did that and it worked like a charm. Ray came uh, and spoke with us um, and he indicated that he'd be happy to have his story told
1: And this became part of the template too, at least for any soul whose story Father Castle shares publicly. Other than that, he doesn't recontact the souls and chat with them. He doesn't ask for information about the future or other hidden things. He understands himself as just trying to help the souls that need it. And he asks their permission if he thinks their story would benefit others by being shared publicly.
0: You said that some of the encounters Father Castle has with souls involve picturing things in very imaginative ways. Can you give an example of that?
1: One of my favorite stories involves the soul of a man called Buddy, and one of the things I like about it is how visually interesting it is. Father Castle describes the dream he received that brought him into contact with Buddy
2: like this. I was in a car stopped at a railroad crossing with no gate or warning signal instead of a succession of box cars flat cars tank cars i watched a string of cars trying to cross the train tracks but being hit by trains it didn't make sequential sense it made me wonder if these accidents had happened at different times first there were older cars maybe from the 30s or 40s and then newer ones One car had an adult man named Briscoe. He was not given first aid. I came to help him. He was a Catholic, and he wanted a blessing. I offered a prayer for him, and he started crying. There might have been six or seven different crashes, trains hitting cars. There was a hospital very nearby. There were two quarters on the ground, and I awoke. So, this dream didn't
1: involve just one death. It involved multiple people dying in car accidents where they were struck by trains. So, Father Castle wasn't sure who he was supposed to be helping. The dream had been about a series of people dying, apparently over a significant period of time. On this occasion, Father Castle turned to his older sister Mimi as a prayer partner.
2: Mimi and I sat in her backyard in in suburban Houston. And said our protective prayers. We never go into this work without St. Michael the Archangel with Holy Mary, St. Dominic, and St. Francis. A lot of the angels and Christian saints, just to keep us safe. And then we go into prayer. I read the story as I just read it to you. And then we wait to see uh, who emerges. Mimi uh, felt the presence of a group of people, and she said they feel stamped. Stamped. I didn't know exactly what that meant, but it certainly sounded unpleasant and uh, frustrating in some way. Well, then Mimi looked up at me and out of her mouth came the voice of a man who said, these people want to make me the conductor. I'm not the conductor. I never said I was the conductor. He was in a field of people all in the same place. All of them had died in collisions between cars and trains. He explained to us that um, that they were all in this place that was so frustrating because it had a train track running right through the center of it, but there was a boulder on the tracks. so they all felt trapped where they were.
1: Now, they don't actually have boulders in the afterlife. I know that, you know that, Father Castle knows that. So the boulder is an obvious symbol. In context, it would be a symbol of whatever is keeping this group of people from moving on in the
2: afterlife. And one of the people in the group seemed to be being pushed into a leadership role. I asked him a little about himself or what happened. And he said, all I did was have a good time. He meant drinking. We just went out for a good time, and I couldn't get back in my body, and I ended up in this place. And I'm not the conductor. Well, I asked, what did he do for work? And he said a little bit of everything, that he was talented, not at one thing in particular, but he could figure things out. Uh, And I said, well, maybe that's why you end up being the person doing the talking today, because you seem to know how to figure things out, and you've got a problem to figure out how do you get people unstuck from this place where there's a boulder on the train tracks? I asked him, what's your name? And he just said, just call me buddy. I said, okay, buddy. Well, what, what? let's get to work on this boulder thing. I wonder if there's any kind of a, like a board or a stick that you could make a fulcrum and, you know, put it under the edge of the boulder and get everybody to lean against it and maybe push it off the tracks. Well, he just said, or maybe if I had some heavy equipment, something like construction, like on a construction site, but we don't have anything like that here. So I said, well, have you asked for it? I said, no. Well, it couldn't hurt to ask, could it? Would you mind if I ask? I'll just ask out loud. Um, uh, do you think you'd know how to work heavy equipment if it showed up? And he said, not without the key. I'd need the key. So I said, well, that's a good idea. <laughs> you need to turn the engine over. It wouldn't do any good to have a piece of equipment that you couldn't even start. So. I said a prayer and just said, God, uh, Buddy would like to know if he could have a piece of heavy equipment to move this boulder and the key to operate it. And I added, and while we're at it, maybe you could send somebody that knows how to operate it just in case it's uh, it's complicated. So uh, it wasn't very long before Buddy perked up and said, well, I'll be. Would you look at that? I said, well, what are you seeing? I don't know what you're seeing. He said, well, it's heavy construction machinery. It's a front end loader. And I said, well, is it yellow? Lots of times they're yellow. He said, yeah, it is. It's yellow. And there's a guy in the cab and he's waving at me to climb aboard. So uh, he did that. And then he said um, he he got in and the guy uh, got behind him to kind of lean over his shoulders just to help him make sure he knew what he was doing. So
1: the boulder symbolizes whatever is stopping these people from making progress towards God. And the proposed solution is asking God for help in removing the boulder. That help is imaginatively pictured as a piece of heavy construction equipment, the key, and someone to help Buddy run it. So what happened
2: when Buddy used the equipment? Buddy looked at the boulder and said, look, it's turning into nothing. It's just dissolving into light. And there's a light on the other side of it. It's coming at us. And I thought, you mean like an oncoming train? You guys all got killed by (laughs) an oncoming train. He said, no, no, it's bright. And it's like a bubble, but there's people inside of it. And I said, does it feel scary? And he said, no. And I said, well, uh, then want, uh, let's ask, try asking for somebody you know and trust, somebody that you feel safe with. And, he, and before he could even do that, he said, look, there's my papa, his grandpa. Uh, and, and I said, um, uh, he, he's waving at us for us to follow him. And I said, well, you mean everybody, all the people around you? He said, yeah, it looks like it. I'm telling them all to form a line and hold hands, and we'll all go together. It's a really long line of people if they want to come. Buddy, I told him, it sounds like you're a conductor, buddy. You're having to tell everybody all aboard. Come along. And he said, okay, well, we're going now. So this one was about as fast as any that I've been a part of.
1: This was a simple, quick experience, but it has very imaginative visual content. The boulder symbolizes whatever problems are holding the people back from moving on and moving towards God. The solution is asking God to help remove these problems. The help arrives, and then they're able to move on. In particular, the story involves one member of the group, Buddy, being willing to accept a leadership role that he was initially inclined to refuse. And accepting a needed role that you're not comfortable with is itself a sign of crossing a spiritual barrier and moving on to a new level. Now, if this account is accurate, I would suppose that the actual situation in the afterlife was vastly more complex than that. But this is how it was simplified and visualized so that Father Castle would be able to understand and interact with it.
0: The examples we've seen thus far have both involved people who died in accidents. Ray died in an accidental fire, and Buddy and his companions died in accidental collisions. Does Father Castle report cases where people died in other ways as a result of intentional violence, like murder?
1: He does report receiving dreams of souls who have died
2: as the result of murder. He says, People come to me in the night, and they bring with them a story that they show me in a dream. Most of the time, almost all the time, it's of their violent sudden death. That can occur in lots of different ways. But once in a while, it's a murder, which was the case in this story. Fortunately, the people who uh, come into my dreams realize that they're moving into the consciousness, the sleeping consciousness uh, of of a person who's trying to help. So it's not gory. They just show me enough of uh, what it takes for me to get the idea.
1: And in Afterlife Interrupted, Book Two, he relates this dream.
2: I was alone on the couch in my rural cabin. I heard the turning of the key in the lock. Who could that be? I wasn't expecting anyone. They didn't even knock. I saw through the inner screen door that it was a man, possibly in his 40s. He wore a mustache and a woman. Was with him. I tried to scream for help. I felt old, frail, and vulnerable. I awoke.
1: And that was all. He didn't get a vision of the murder itself. He just realized that the soul in question was someone who was infirm. The person received an unexpected visit from a man and a woman. The person felt vulnerable, and Father Castle thought that they might have been murdered.
2: It did turn out that much of the detail that I received was correct. The person involved was female. She was an elderly woman. We learned that her name was Claire. We learned that she was uh, up in years. She lived alone on a dirt road in the forest, but she had gotten frail and she took a fall inside her house. She tripped over the edge of a rug. And crack some ribs. She had neighbors that brought her food. She had one neighbor lady who had a key to her house, but that woman would usually phone ahead to let her know that she was coming and that she would be letting herself in. And at the time that this story begins, it's, I think, late afternoon. She's dozing on the couch. And as you heard in the dream, she hears a rattling at the door wondering who could that be. She looked up looked up to find this couple of people and she told us that she didn't like the looks of it from the beginning. There was something about these two that suggested drugs. When she realized that there were people she didn't know barging into her house she told us I tried to muster myself and defend my home, let them know that they were not welcome. She told us that the man pushed her, and she said that's all it took. She fell and I think hit her head, and that was that. So this would not be
1: first-degree or premeditated murder. It might be classified as a second-degree murder the guy likely did not intend to kill her but he was engaged in a crime and took action that led to her death claire then recounted an
2: event with her guardian angel she said i was swooped up by my guardian and placed not exactly on the roof of her house but between the roof and the canopy of trees over her house she knew she was safe she was uh, under the direction of someone who cared for her. She told us that she was a Christian woman, but she had quit going to church in her frailty because it was just so difficult for her to get out. She did what she was directed to do, and she shook like that dog that had just gone swimming. And then her guardian said an extraordinary thing to her. It's unpleasant here. Let's leave. Well, she was very practical person. She essentially said, I didn't have a better offer at the time. And so I said, yes. And we flew away from there.
1: So after she died, she was swooped up by her guardian angel to a place of safety above her house. The angel encouraged her to shake off what just happened to her using the physical metaphor of shaking. And then he took her to another place where she wouldn't have to witness the aftermath of what was happening at her house it turned out that the angel took her to a place of healing. Now, you might wonder what Claire's attitude was towards the people who had just taken her life, and she commented on this.
2: She said in passing that she hoped that the people that intruded upon her home and took her life, she wondered, she said, she they probably didn't think they were going to take my life that day. I think they were probably just looking for money or something that they could turn into drugs. She said, I hope they find what they're after, or even better, that they find what they really need that would be really good for them. She was a compassionate soul, even towards people that invaded her home and caused her death.
1: That kind of charitable attitude fits with a saved soul who is not being held back by very much. It wasn't like she was burning with resentment towards them and needed to get past the resentment to move on. And it turned out that this
2: was the case. It sounded like she didn't need an awful lot. She just needed a chance to rest and regroup, but she made her way to, to us. My prayer partners and I, I often say, are sort of like the discharge staff in a medical center. When you have healed sufficiently that you don't need to be here any longer, we're the ones who kind of help you gather yourself and get out the door. But because you're going to be going to a place you've not been before, you're going to need a guide. Well. Claire had been well prepared for the experience that we might be able to provide her. And we were kind of famous for asking the question, can you think of anyone who died before you did who, you know, loved you? I came upon that very early on because these people had all been through trauma. And so I thought it best if whoever came for them was someone very familiar and loved. So that's, what we asked her, and she knew she was going to be asked that.
1: This was something that developed over time in Father Castle's ministry. After he started asking the question, it seemed that the souls he was being presented with had already been told to expect this question, and Claire was ready
2: for it. Well, she said, well, my sister went by Seely, and she said she died a young woman I've been talking to her photograph for the last 40 years. If I could pick anybody that would come for me, it would be Seeley. So we just paused for a little bit, went into a little more focused prayer, and said, God, if it's possible, Claire would like to be greeted by her sister Seeley. And it didn't take more than 10 seconds. Before Claire said, Oh my God, look at her. We always have to ask them, please, to describe what they're seeing because I don't see what they see. Well, she went on to say that Celie always had a dream of being a stewardess before they were called flight attendants. She wanted to be a stewardess, never got to do it. But she said, You remember when the airlines were younger? and they made all the stewardesses be really thin, and they made them wear these little uh, sexy little outfits. She said she's on one of those planes that have a little staircase that you have to climb up in in order to get in it. She's standing up at the top, and she said she's holding a tray with an umbrella drink in it. She wants me to know that if I get on her plane, she I'm going to be writing in first class, all I really knew need to do is make myself solid enough to walk upstairs and, and she'll take it from there. She said, it's just girls having a little bit of fun. I always thought of the afterlife and of God as being fun, especially heaven being fun, and of that Not being a generic kind of fun that everybody had to have the same kind of fun because we're not that way. Uh, We have lots of different uh, tastes and things that give us joy. But anyway, this was two girls having fun. So Claire uh, did ascend that little staircase up into her sister's plane and presumably enjoyed an umbrella drink on her way from one afterlife plane to the next. And I think that's sweet. We all
1: have unfulfilled dreams, you know, things that we would have liked to do and wish we could have done. And since we won't have unfulfilled desires once we reach heaven, we may well have a chance to, in some way, engage in the things that we wished we could have done in life. So I like the little glimpse of Claire's sister, Celie, being able to appear as a stewardess. I also suspect that we will not have cookie cutter afterlives where we all experience exactly the same things. Instead, we may have experiences that are based on our individual personalities and aptitudes. So it may not be exactly the same for all of us because we're different people. And of course, you know, remember that what we're hearing is presumably a dramatically simplified version of whatever would really be going on. Now, this gives you a sense of the kinds of encounters that Father Castle reports in his ministry. I've read both of his books, and there's a lot more types of experiences in them, but these give you a sample. And notice that they aren't all the same. Ray had a lot of anger he was working through, and it took multiple sessions with him because he was the first. Buddy was also resistant in the beginning. He didn't want to have a leadership role thrust on him. But Claire was basically ready to go to the next level, and she even knew who she wanted to be greeted when the question was asked. But this gives you a sense of the kind of work that Father Castle does, which brings us to my interview with him.
0: And before we get to that interview, I do want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Christian B., Clarice R., Ray M., Rebecca R., and J.S. Their generous tax-deductible donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fairvento Law PLLC. Now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com. And by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at delivercontacts.com. Father Nathan G. Castle
1: entered the Dominican Order in 1979 and was ordained as a priest in 1985. He received Master of Arts and Master of Divinity degrees from the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. Father Nathan has served as a campus minister at Arizona State University, the University of California Riverside, and Stanford University. Currently, he lives in a community of Dominican men and women serving the University of Arizona in Tucson. Father Nathan has prayed for deceased souls since childhood, and has helped stuck and not-so-stuck souls cross over. He has written two books on the subject, Afterlife Interrupted, books one and two, and he has plans to add a third book to the series. He also hosts a podcast called The Joyful Friar, which is available in standard podcast directories and in video form on his YouTube channel. He is available for speaking engagements and retreats. Father Nathan can be reached through his website, nathan-castle.com, and on various social media outlets, Father
2: Nathan Castle, welcome to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. I'm excited to be with you today. Thanks for inviting me.
1: In our opening segment, we covered how you got into doing this work. Um, how long have you been doing it at this point? How many years? I think it's 27. Wow. Okay. So quite a quite a lengthy period. Right. How often do you receive dreams about a soul that needs help and? How many people do you estimate you've helped so far?
2: My standard answer to that is they come about once a week. Although of late, I'll sometimes have three in one night. I don't know why. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I would say four or five a month anyway. So mm-hmm. something like weekly. And then what your other question? The How many people do you estimate you've helped? How many souls? More than 500, probably between 500 and 550, something like that. Now, sometimes. Most of the time, they're individual uh, stories, but sometimes they're clustered somehow. And the movement of one facilitates the movement of others around them. Uh, But but somewhere between five and six hundred, I should think. Okay,
1: yeah, we talked in the opening segment about Buddy the Conductor, who was was kind of representative of a group of people who had died in car accidents. Right, right. Um, Who do you think sends you the dreams? Is it the soul that needs help itself, or maybe does their guardian angel play a role? Do you have a sense of where the dreams are coming
2: from? The guardians certainly do, and in my religious imagination, I think of the Holy Spirit. Spirit, of course, means breath, and we're surrounded by air. We're Mm -hmm. always in the presence of air. (laughs) I'm also a scuba diver, and even, even underwater, you have to be in the presence of the tanks that supply your air. Uh, so I think of the Holy Spirit as the uh, the media the and the sender but um, within that within inside the Holy Spirit or inside the body of Christ, the guardians are very important and they all of the people that I have helped and my prayer partners and I have helped uh, have been vetted there, there's nothing random about it um, they they've all been through a process and they've been deemed ready to do the thing that we help do. Mm-hmm.
1: And so you view the dreams coming as a kind of collaborative thing involving the soul, the guardians and the Holy Spirit.
2: Absolutely. From the very beginning. I, I Maybe that's just my Catholic upbringing that I, I was always taught that, yes, you're an individual, but you're an individual inside a family mm-hmm. or in a body, in a group and a collective. And so I, my first impulse was not to think I must be Terribly extraordinary. <laughs> I was just thinking, oh, okay, the Lord is doing something new, and I signed up for the whole journey. So let's go.
1: Now, um, like anybody else, you have ordinary dreams how, that don't have anything to do with this ministry. How do you distinguish between a ministry-related dream and other dreams? Thank how you do for you know? Us.
2: It's important. Yeah. Well, last night I did not have a visit. I ha- and, and I'm. I'm pretty aware of my dreams. You know, you don't know what you don't know, but I'm I'm most of most mornings if you were to have coffee with me and say Did You Dream About Anything, I'd have a story to tell. And last night I had an, a number of stories that were pretty very vivid, but they weren't about anybody's need to cross. The these other ones, first of all, the circumstances are so unlike anything that I've been through. I've not been shot or stabbed or drowned and uh, I have been in car accidents, but nothing like the fatal ones that people bring me, so they 're just so different than my own experiences that i've just gotten used to waking from them and going, "Oh, I need to write that one down <laughs> that, that was i and I distinguish between having a dream, which is what I did last night about my own cycle babble, and receiving a dream, which is somebody else conveying a story to me that they hope I will receive.
1: What kind of cases do you get, meaning what kind of souls need help? You know, people in life have a lot of different problems they need to to overcome. Do you, for example, get requests from souls who maybe, I don't know, had a problem with an eating disorder in life and they need to help, they need help getting over an attachment to food or is it some other set of problems that your dreams deal with?
2: Even if they had uh, something like that, they would have been counseled by other people, our ministry is more analogous to the discharge staff of a medical center. I'm not at the front end, and I'm not in the middle of it doing the heavy lifting of counseling. We are near the front door. Uh, during the pandemic, did you see any of those news things about somebody who they thought couldn't possibly survive, but who did, and maybe they'd been in the hospital for a month? And, and then... Instead of quietly slipping away, all the secretaries, <laughs> everybody in the hospital is lined up with balloons and, you know, and fanfare as the person goes out the door. Have you seen stuff like that?
1: I haven't seen that specifically, but I can easily
2: imagine it. Yeah, well, it's it's similar to that where we are charged with helping somebody the way that you might be need to be. Questioned on the day you're leaving the hospital, do you understand your medications? Do you know your physical therapy schedule? Will you be well fed and housed? Who's coming to get you? There might be a social worker uh, who has uh, that duty. And we're a little like that. We just make sure that people who are about to ascend, move from place to place, have the accompaniment that they need and are ready.
1: What kind of problems uh, do you deal with? Is there a range of them or are they in reading your books? It seems like they're primarily people who have had traumatic deaths of some kind.
2: Almost all of them. Uh, although you because you've you've been so thorough and I was telling you before we began the interview that I'm grateful because I'm on a lot of podcasts and I don't think I've been on one that has been so thoroughly researched. Uh, <laughs> uh, you've done your homework very well. Well, you know that one of the things that we sometimes get is a person who did not die a violent death, but who had a trauma that sort of was, it it, it killed a part of them. And and they were ca- kind of walked through the rest of their life stumbly.
1: Right. One of the stories you relate is of a woman whose husband died in front of her, and she kind of collapsed in on herself. and. Did not die a violent death, but she had experienced a trauma prior to death that left her wounded.
2: Yes. And there was another story of, a you remember the one of the woman who was carpooling, but she was a little over the alcohol limit. And she killed a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, that The day that that happened, uh, her world collapsed. And she lived on for a number of years, but she did so at a very low grade level and then entered the afterlife. Sometimes people will hope that it's all just going to go away in a twinkling. That that the joys of heaven or whatever, will, you know, they'll just move from this to that. And maybe that happens for some folk, but not the ones that I deal with.
1: How common do you think it is for a soul to be in a situation where it needs the type of help that you provide? Is it something that happens to a lot of souls or only a few? What's your sense of that?
2: I, I think it's only a few um, in, in both books and whenever I do interviews like this, I'm aware that one of the reasons that people are attracted to podcasts of this kind or or ones like mine that deal more explicitly with death and resurrection, consciousness studies and such, is that they've been through the sudden abrupt loss of a loved one and their interest in the topic is not academic. It's it's moving through horrific grief. And, uh, and so sometimes I want to make sure they understand that just because some souls appear to get stuck don't make your grief worse and assume that your loved one uh, is is in somehow in need of help that you don't know how to provide
1: mm-hmm. so odds are if someone has lost somebody that lost loved one and probably is not stuck right
2: that's my you know I, it's I think it's also important to say I don't know mm-hmm. you know I think people who are intellectually honest do that <laughs> and I hope to be that and so I don't know, but here's what I think. Uh, I I think that a lot of people don't need the services of someone like my little team. Uh, But those who do, we're here. Mm
1: -hmm. Now, speaking of of your team and how you work with them, when you begin a session, uh, you begin with a protective prayer. Uh, Absolutely. Why do you do that? And whose help do you ask? Whose protection are you asking?
2: Well, I like to say that I don't pick up hitchhikers on this plane or any other one. I just don't think it's safe. I believe that God made everyone well. I think the first page of the Bible attests to that over and over again. God looks at everything God creates and and decides that it's good. But that doesn't mean that every last human or every last angel is currently well-behaved. And not everybody on the human or angelic level is good company. and so. I make sure that my prayer partners and I uh, surround ourselves. We start with Saint Michael the Archangel. Uh, he's heaven's defender, and I believe I've known him for a long time. And uh, I I believe that he is an angel of light and has no enemies. Um, he's not trying to vanquish a foe. Very often, the depiction, depictions of him make it look like he's reveling in jamming a sword down a snake's throat or something like that. I know that he doesn't revel in that kind of thing any more than we want police to enjoy beating up a suspect. You know? Mm-hmm. Um he just does what's necessary to protect. And he he's conscious that the one that might temporarily be his opponent is also his brother. I believe that's the way Jesus operates. So we start with Michael the Archangel, Holy Mary, right out of the gate. She's just delightful. And sometimes she shows up and speaks in sessions. Um, Mm -hmm. Many times she's in the background, but uh, you wouldn't invite Mary without Joseph. Um, And Dominic is my spiritual father. I I like to involve uh, Padre Pio. Uh, uh, He has, you know, he had such experience with spirits. So did St. Benedict. Uh, I always use him. And then Mary Magdalene. And I just have so many saints and angel friends that, it might not always be exactly the same list the same way that you and i might go to a liturgy with a litany and there might be some names that are always in there but then there might be some local ones or you know there might be a little variety it's kind of like that
1: mm-hmm. okay now um are the protective prayers do you think are they an infallible guarantee of protection from deception or have you ever had an experience where you think a deceptive soul or other spirit was able to Slip through the protection?
2: I don't think so. I mean, again, I don't know what I don't know, but I'm—I trust that um, I don't—I don't do any of this cavalierly. Uh, I come at it with full focus. I don't do these when I'm fatigued. You know, there are there are ways that you can be more susceptible to unholy influences, and so I try to be at my best, pray my way in, uh, be hopeful and joyful, um, because. These stories, even though they involve sometimes they're horrific murders and there's can be great darkness. But it really is the, the Paschal mystery of Good Friday turning into Easter morning. And one I just did this week, this Italian Catholic guy who died at 22, he said, it's just so cool. It's just so cool. Uh, and he said, if you I, I said, I'm, I, I was getting his permission to use this story in my third book. And I said, now the fact that I get your permission doesn't mean that you're in. I'm just I'm just asking. And he said, Well, if I get in, I get to that means I get to say something to people. And what I would want to say is, go for it, do it. If you have to do some long, slow process, well, okay. But I would just say if you try to go faster and deeper and higher, resources you didn't know existed will show up and help you. Hmm. So I don't know why I got off on that. <laughs> why did I get off on that?
1: Well, I'd asked whether you ever thought a deceptive spirit or something had slipped through.
2: And you didn't think so. I don't I don't think so. I, I maybe because we're thorough at the front end. Uh we never do this without protective prayer. Uh and uh and I just believe that the Holy Spirit is uh holding me and I consecrated my life to the Lord several times over. Um, in, in the Dominican life, we, we're we not allowed to just sign up, you know, and that's that. You have to do several years of discernment and, you know, you, you have to renew your vows and you lay on the shape of, on the floor in the shape of the cross and whatever. I, I can't tell you how many times I've said to the Lord, take me, I'm yours. Um, and especially in the Dominican order, we're the order of preachers and so our voices are even more important to the heart of our charism, And I. when this phenomenon of allowing people to speak through, it manifested before I was Dominican, uh, when I right out of college. And I, I, I permitted it, and the fruits of it were good. And when I entered the order, I already knew that that could at least possibly be a part of my life. I didn't think it would, but after a while it did. And so my voice is God's instrument.
1: Now, when you're doing a session, you, as we said, you begin with protective prayer. Yeah. What do you do next?
2: Well, I have a journal on the nightstand that when one of these stories, one of these dreams is received, I wake from it and I write it down as fast as I can. Um, You know, I don't know if you're a very lucid dreamer, are you? Do you usually wake up remembering a dream?
1: I usually do. um, I sometimes will become fully lucid in a dream, although that's not common, you know, where I'm aware that I'm dreaming. But I I do tend to wake up and remember my dreams, especially if I make an effort to do so. And I know that that I was going to bring this up because some people don't hardly ever remember their dreams, but you will remember them more if you start making an effort and start writing them down. And so as, as someone who does write, these at least these dreams down. You would be expected to remember a lot more of your dreams than someone who doesn't ever pay attention to
2: them. I do, and I try to do it promptly, uh, so that that because it's a genre where the detail can fade if if you don't jot it down as fast as you can. And and I, and I try to be faithful to that. I started studying dream work even when I was a novice back in the late nineteen seventies. It just interested me that. It was quite clear in the scriptures that that's one of the ways that God has spoken to his people across time and space and religious traditions. It's just just one of the ways that, that the divine and the human interact. So that always interested me. And then later on, it became a very big feature for me.
1: So you write down the dream right after you have it. How do you then use that in the session?
2: Well, we make appointments just like you and I made an appointment to be on a Zoom call. Uh, none of my prayer partners or I do this full time. (laughs) I'm saying masses and tonight I'm the cook. I have to go go grocery shop later today. Uh, I'm going to a conference in a few days. I need to get myself ready to be on the road there. I have a lot of responsibilities, just like just about everybody I know, but we schedule ahead of time and I have some prayer partners. During the pandemic, I moved on to zoom doing this because we couldn't get together for much of anything. and, it works just fine. The Holy Spirit is everywhere. And the Holy Spirit can, you know, one of my partners is in Buffalo, New York. The others in Southern California will be on the same Zoom call and it works seamlessly. So I when we're together, we say our protective prayers. We set aside the time and consecrate the space. So we're not distracted. We're not in a hurry. We're at God's service. We I read the story in the form of Lexio Divina. Are you familiar with Black Seal?
1: Yes, it's a kind of meditative way of reading frequently of uh, of Scripture, but you're reading the dream account of the soul that needs your help in a meditative
2: way. Yes, and brief, you read it the first time just for the data, for the information in the words. Then we post, we're more still and ask the Holy Spirit to inspire us. And you might think of it as left brain and right brain if you want, or mind and heart, something like that. Uh, we read it a second time just to allow it to kind of. I, so I use the image, or I imagine some something like uh, making a cup of tea and letting the tea bag steep and let the story uh, become fully embodied in me. And then, as soon as we're done with that, um, I almost always now ask for the help of a guardian angel because I want clarity about who we're helping and, and what their circumstance was. For example, A person might have shown me that they died in an automobile accident where they were the driver, but they didn't show me whether they were male or female. Or I didn't get whether they were young or old or middle-aged. Sometimes I have a feeling like I'm outside of the United States, but but that's unusual. Most of them are in the U.S. Uh, Sometimes they feel very remote in time where that's uncommon. Most of them have been people who lived in my lifetime or at least close to it, last hundred years and most much more recent than that, but once in a while there's someone from further back in time, so a guardian can come through and provide uh really helpful information, and they are just the best for I hope that many of your uh viewers and listeners uh know their guardians or appreciate that they are in the they are accompanied by somebody who is just crazy wonderful and very cool
1: okay. So you um, you ask for information and in your books, you refer to this sometimes as a mic test where a guardian may briefly make contact before the soul that you're there to serve.
2: Again, like a podcast, uh, you don't start these things until you've made sure all the tech is lined up. And there's a a little bit of a tech thing. You know, most of these people have never spoken through another human person's voice before. So they're doing something they've never done and they've been through trauma. Uh, now, most of them are not feeling traumatized at the moment that I meet them, but they have been through trauma, and I don't want to scare them. <laughs> I want this process to be simple, so their guardian will come on and say hello. They'll often choose a name that uh, is that is just for the moment. That's a nickname that they're going to go by during this session.
1: The the guardian or the soul,
2: the guardian. Yeah, the guardian will often say uh, that some name that somehow relates to, I just was dealing with some people that were field workers and the guardian chose the name Adele. And she said, Adele is a part of a field that has a gentle slope. You know, farmer in the Dell. Oh, I see. Over, over Hill and Dale. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, 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 I love words. And so I, I I pay attention to etymologies and they know that about me. And so they uh they sometimes entertain that part of me that they, they'll choose a name because of the uh, the, the story behind the name uh, anyway they're they're delightful and they don't stay on the line very long they um, they explain that the one they, they give a little bit of explanatory detail and then they begin to say, "I think I'm talking too much now. It's really up to the one that I guard to take it from here," and then that person comes on the line if you will. They'll slide to the side. It feels like going from left to right. I don't know why, just in my imagination. And they'll say, we'll be right over here uh, praying for you. You know, we'll be actively a part of the team, but uh, it's now time for the one I, they often say the one I guard and love. We'll speak next.
1: And so that person then comes on and there's a kind of discussion of, you know, what led the person to where they are now and what they're dealing with. And you provide them with a kind of counseling to help them move on. Is that accurate?
2: A little bit of counseling, although um, most of, I I also am a counselor and I've dealt with the front end of people who've never been to a counselor before and, you know, helping them form their ideas and move through difficult material. This is really not like that so much. There's a little bit of that, but mostly it's just helping them collect themselves and and be uh, enthusiastic, excited about the step that they're about to take. Um, you know, a lot of people assume at a funeral, especially believers, assume at a funeral that the deceased is now bowling in heaven or playing golf on the first tee or they're, they're back with their spouse or whatever, that that they've gone from their last breath in the body to the, the thing that would most delight them. And I hope that's often the case. But for some, they, the way that they died was just so traumatizing they need something between the traumatic death and that next moment. And we live in that little space, I think.
1: Now, in the experience of Buddy, who became the conductor, you apparently helped a group uh, that was a whole whole group of people that Buddy ended up leading. How common is it for you to help more than one person in a single session?
2: It's uh, less than one in 10, uh, maybe even rarer than that. but. Usually in the dream, I have a sense that the traumatic violent event was experienced by a lot of people. Do you remember the story of Nadi and the uh, massacre in Iraq? Yes, that's another one. He was he was a member of a congregation, a mosque that it, its its building had its worship site had been bombed, and he said there was no proper imam, but I was an elder and a leader and a businessman. It was it, we just needed. Uh, well, he just said some I had to step up and, and find a new place for my community to worship. The men and wor- women don't worship in the same room. So he needed uh, adjacent places and they wanted something with few windows and few doors. So there wouldn't be a lot of exposure to, to other potential violence. And while he was at prayer, they heard machine gun fire and were worried about their women their wives and daughters. And his choice was, do I stay in here in safety or do I venture out and try to protect the women? His choice was to venture out. And when he did, there were people all over the street bleeding and nobody was quite sure from which direction the gunfire was coming. Uh, then he looked to his side and saw a 10 year old girl with a gun pointed at him with people, men standing over her with guns pointed at her head, telling her to shoot him. And, she did. All right. And so he died in a in a very public, violent way. But it, it turned out that his story was helpful to m- maybe a couple of dozen other people. And they left in what he called a parade of floats. The Tigris and the Euphrates, the big biblical rivers that run through Iraq, uh, he said, This part of the world wouldn't have been habitable were were it not for those two rivers. So everything had some reference to the rivers. And he said every festival we ever had was along the river, and many of them were on uh, uh, little flatboats. So rather than have a Christmas parade down Main Avenue, or Fourth of July parade in your town, he said ours were always on floats. and. Uh, And they'd be decorated for the occasion, whatever it was being celebrated. And when it came time for him to cross, he said, beneath us there's now about two inches or maybe six inches of water, enough to float on. And he said, we're not endangered. It's not a flood. It's just enough water for floats. And and then he, he said, we're all seeing what would most appeal to us to help us leave here and go with them. And he said, my father is on a float beckoning for me to come. So I think it's time for me to get aboard.
1: Mm-hmm. So. so that would be another type of group experience.
2: Yes. Yeah.
1: How long does a session typically take?
2: We allow two hours and we usually can do two in that amount of time. So they go about 40 to 45 minutes. We, we When we get together, we have a little bit of getting together you know, catching up because it's been a couple of weeks. How's how was your vacation? You know, A little bit of banter. We do the protective prayer, go into the story, help the person. And then sometimes we do a little bit of a debrief at the end of it after they've left. You know, Uh, then I record them all on an app on my phone. And so it takes a moment for the to work the app and get it to uh, upload. And uh, it gets transcribed into a Word document. We take a bathroom break, and then we usually go on to a second story and can usually do two in a two-hour block of time.
1: Now, in the case of the very first one you did, Ray, the perfect gentleman, it took several sessions working with him to get him the help he needed. Do you ever have cases these days where it can take more than one session, maybe because the person has a lot of trauma or anger or something to work through?
2: No, it's never worked that way. Only the first one took more than one attempt. and. Uh, maybe that was because we needed to have some discernment time in our own lives. Um, I don't know. I, it, it, the simple answer to your question is no, that only happened once. Ever since, it only takes one uh, session. And the sessions are not even long. They're, and it might be, they talk about getting in my line. Um, sometimes the the soul chooses me and my team other time, their guardian says, I'm going to do this on your behalf. and But there's a choice. There's a lot of other options about what, what – you remember the lady, Wilhelmina, says she used to shop from a catalog, like mm-hmm. J.C. and Sears, and they told her, why don't you sit down here and page through this? And she turned a page, and I was there. And she said, oh, I'll pick that one because I was a Catholic, and this one's a priest. I think I'd be more comfortable with that. So um, heaven, if you want to call it that, I use the word afterlife. Um, uh, because uh, uh, this is a universal genre. I think God loves everybody all the time, and it's not just Roman Catholics or Christians or Americans. It's lots of people. But um, anyway, I just think uh, God's creation has so much variety in it that there are lots of ways that people can do a thing, but these people chose my line is what they call it. So you have kind of a, like a line of souls waiting to Yeah, and be. it bugs me. Uh, I, I try not to make them wait more than about six-week stops. Uh, if, but if they're if a lot of them come in a hurry and if the other parts of my life happen to be busy, um, I try to keep the line moving. Uh, but once in a while, people have to wait a while. In fact, one time, a, a guardian said, we've come at a most propitious time. because I was on vacation. And I was on vacation for an entire month, and I had taken the time away with a priest friend, and we were um, I had lots of leisure. And so part of that, I was just online with, with my prayer partners, scheduling more frequent crossings. And this one guardian came through and said, we've come at a most propitious time. Uh, the line is moving much more rapidly than normal, so we didn't need to go anywhere else to wait our turn. We just decided to stay here with these men and the dog. We had a little dog with us, <clears throat> and said um, these men they watch baseball almost incessantly. The guardian was, had paid attention to us and said um, they watch baseball almost incessantly. There's they they we're each my friend and I are, are fans of he's a Boston Red Sox and I'm Houston an Astros, and he said they they watch their own teams on these small screens in their laps, and then there's a large one on the wall where they watch children play baseball because it was during the Little League World Series. Oh, okay. And so this Guardian just thought that was so funny that we all watch so much baseball. And and he said, uh, we wanted to ask him what name he was going to use, and he was inside me, and I thought, okay, this guy's a joker. He said, "Um, I want you to call me Jake, but not from State Farm. Okay. Do you watch TV? Do you see those commercials of Jake from State Farm? I don't. Anybody that watches television would know Jake from State Farm. Those ads are, are uh, everywhere. Mm-hmm. And the angel explained that poor Jake from State Farm is trying to tell people how inexpensive this insurance is. But everybody he talks to thinks they're getting a private s- smoking deal. And he must d- he must have he said he must dissuade them of this knowledge. He he. Uh, um, he he tries to tell them that everyone, this rate right is available to everyone. But anyway, he just said, "I want you to call me Jake, but not from State Farm." Okay, he was just playing with us. Uh, mm-hmm. but they can be very playful.
1: Uh huh. So angels can have a
2: sense of humor. Absolutely. Why would anybody think otherwise? <laughs> but uh, but they do.
1: Now, some of your cases, especially in the second book, seemed, very, seemed like they were quite easy to resolve compared, for example, to Ray the Perfect Gentleman. Um, what's the most difficult case you've had, and have you ever encountered a soul that you weren't able to help, someone who just wasn't
2: ready to move on at the last minute? I only remember one time, and it must have been 15 or 20 years ago by now, Where we did what we always do and made ourselves available, read the person's story and all that, and uh, found that just nothing, it was just quiet silence. And I wondered, you know, if I was doing it wrong, if I was too distracted or something. And I just thought, well, we went into prayer a second time and I said, uh, Holy Spirit, we're going to make ourselves available. And, uh, you know, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. We'll go on to the next. And uh, that only happened once out of like more than 500. So I don't know what that was about, but, um, you know, God's got lots of ways to deal with all of this. And I didn't feel like I needed to spend any more time on it. I did what I I could, and then I moved on.
1: Mm -hmm. And if you're serving as kind of the equivalent of a discharge staff in a medical facility,
2: the doctors have already vetted the people and said, this person's ready to go. Yes, exactly. That's and and that seemed to be communicated even all the way back to Ray Um, there. You know, I teach the gifts of the Holy Spirit and uh, and it's one of my favorite things to teach. And one of them um, is the, um, the gift of understanding in the in the classical list. It's usually second after knowledge. And the way that I teach it is that the gift of understanding is like that in a cartoon strip, that light bulb or exclamation point where a person knows a thing, but they might not be able to tell you why they know it. Uh, that experience that you might've had, or your audience might've had of believing themselves to be alone in a room, suddenly being aware that they're not alone, but not because they heard anything or the five senses weren't the reason that they suspected that they just had a sixth sense or um an understanding that I'm not alone any longer. Ever had that happen?
1: Yeah, and in fact, there have been parapsychological studies on the sense of being stared at, where people seem to suddenly be aware that someone's watching them when it's not their five senses telling them that.
2: Well, I've just gotten used to the fact that in this process, I just know a thing because someone has touched the whatever, wherever, if you imagine it being in your... Skull somewhere that there's some spot, you know like when you're greeting somebody at the airport and you're scanning and scanning crowds, 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 and then your eyes land on the person that you're there to greet. there's a boom, there's an instantaneous thing that happens inside you that says that one. Well, I, I sometimes wonder if in the the, the the metaphysics of it, if the spirit can touch that spot without need of any of the five senses providing the data.
1: Hmm. Yeah. now in uh the sessions that you do you commonly ask uh the soul that you're helping who they would like to ex- escort them to the next level and you can then request that if that person
2: is available have there ever
1: been cases where the requested escort was not available
2: no um we don't summon um You know, in a dark way, we don't control anybody's movement. We just say, if so-and-so is available, could they make themselves known to this person who's uh, asking for them? And I've never had that, never seen it fail. Uh, Even, you know, even if someone were um, indisposed, you know, like when you do, do you have a prayer life with any of the saints or any deceased loved ones? Oh, yes. Well, well, um, do you ever wonder if they're busy and you know you can 't take your call right now or something like that i was I was taught early as a Catholic that if that were to happen uh the, the Holy Spirit would still see that your message got through at the first available moment, and that made sense to me uh and that seems to me the way it works i I'm, We just ask and uh and then sometimes if people 's names get mentioned in a conversation in this context, that's all it takes for them to be alert. They haven't exactly been asked to show up, but we're talking about them and they know it and they show up. And um, I've gotten used to that. And that happens a lot.
1: Now, before publicly revealing a soul story, like writing it in one of your books or talking about it on your podcast, you you ask the soul's permission. Has anyone ever said no, that they'd prefer to keep their story private?
2: There's one that uh, I'll come back to, but there are a couple in the books that said, I don't want my story to to hurt anyone or re-traumatize people that already suffered my traumatic loss. Uh, And in one case, uh, there was a woman whose death was sudden, violent, and tragic. But it was deemed accidental when, in fact, it was intentional. It was murdered. But it was concealed in a way that succeeded for the person who killed her. They got away with murder. And she said, now my children are grown. They have children of their own. I wouldn't want them. They can know the truth of that later after they pass. But I'd like for them to be able to live the rest of their lives without uh, that detail known to them. So she allowed us to change her name and a little bit of a circumstance that might've, uh, tipped people off. Um, and there was another, there've been, well, there's at least that one that, that suffices.
1: Okay. The, so this person was okay with the story going out, provided identifying details were
2: removed. Correct. Uh, and she chose a, a screen name, if you will, a pseudonym. Uh, Uh, And then there's another one. One of the questions that you haven't asked that maybe you will, uh, that I'm asked often enough is about what in psychic research gets called verification. Can you prove that these people existed? We'll get there. uh, Death certificates, um, uh, obituaries, online is some sort of online proof that this person actually lived and the person, and it's all verified. Well, I've I've asked the Lord any number of times. No, I shouldn't say it that way. I've asked several times. Do you want me to do that? And I've been told not yet. And I serve the Lord, and uh, I believe what we're doing is already helpful. And if the Lord is content with it being helpful uh, in within the constraints that we've been given, great. Um, But I've wondered. I do get asked sometimes um, by researchers. Uh, can this be verified? And I, there's one that a, a person who died rather spectacularly, who, whose death was in the news, who we helped, and that came up, and she said, um, "Let's hold off."
1: Okay, so,
2: so so and hold off doesn't mean we're necessarily going to do that. It just means not yet, not now. Let's wait, something yeah. like so. I don't know if I'll ever be called to do that, but it's complicated because uh, any one of us could die violently. Mm -hmm. And um, how many people are affected by your violent death? Mm -hmm. And how would you get down to the, the, all the way down the list of anybody who could be offended and outraged and stuff that you meddled in their grief?
1: Just to be clear. So this, uh, this one woman said, Let's hold off, she meant by that. Let's not publicly share
2: this story for now, correct, okay, That's exactly what she meant okay. and uh and I wonder if if ever we did move in that direction, I would at least go back to her in prayer and say, "What do you think um and uh and then there there you know I would you know i you know that phrase, you won't cross that bridge when you come to it. I try to stay in the present moment, do the present duty." I pray, pray, pray the Lord's prayer. We ask for our daily bread and not a bakery. You know, we we ask for what we need when we need it, and and trust that we'll always have what we need. And then the Lord can direct us later in, in ways that we haven't been yet.
1: How have these have these experiences changed over time? And if so, how have they changed? I know that uh, from reading your books that you mentioned originally, many of the souls you were asked were. Asked to help were from the southern United States, but it's more diverse now. What trends have you noticed?
2: That was one. I, You know, I'm from Port Arthur, Texas, which is the southeast corner of Texas on the Gulf Coast. Yeah, I know it. Um, And um, but I really hadn't ventured very much further east than uh, than southeast Louisiana. My cousins are in New Orleans, but we never went much further than that. And, and early on, I was getting all these people from Georgia and the Carolinas and Florida and stuff. And just, it's like, have I been given a territory? Uh, like I'm a salesperson or something, you know, you've got a region or a diocese in the church. And, uh, and then after a while, that seemed to go away. Uh, so that that really isn't, ha- doesn't come into play anymore. Um, one thing that has changed is we used to uh, always feel the need at 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 the right moment in the conversation to say, now it's time for you to cross. And here are three ways that that might work. You know, uh, you could choose someone specific and invite them. Uh, You could take the luck of the draw and see who the Holy Spirit provides. And then um, early on, we started seeing that once in a while there were famous people, either sainted, you know, heroes in the faith, or Admirable people in history, or whatever. So we we kind of thought there were these like three categories: doors number one, two, and three. Now I don't need to coach anybody into that. They've all been told that well in advance. By the time they get in our line, they already know that, and their guardians say these people have kind of grooved their technique. This is what you can expect from them, and they've all they they come with an answer. They don't need to be prompted. So they already know who they want as their escort. Or they'll sometimes will say, my guardian here has been so faithful and and good. Uh, I don't need anybody. My guardian will take care of it. Sometimes they'll just say, I've been served so well by so many people. Whoever the next one is, I'm confident that the next one will be just right. So they're content with just going with the flow. Uh, And then there still are are ones that want to see their grandma or uh, they have some specific loved one. And then once in a great while, there'll be somebody that just has a kind of a sense of fun and adventure and saying, well, why not, you know, why not Einstein, you know, or whatever. And so i just say, well, it's up. It's, it would be up to Dr. Einstein. <laughs> mean we can't ask. And then you just let, let it flow. And then once in a while, there are people that have been through this process who show up to help somebody else. Uh, The transition between books one and two involves Paul who uh, killed himself and three others by accidentally driving into a lake. And a part of his afterlife healing was to um, kind of, if you will, get back on the horse. I once had to do that. My dad made me get back on a horse that I had fallen from. Mm. And it wasn't just a metaphor for me. It's a lived experience that I remember. But Paul needed to get behind the wheel again. And, and know that the fact that you made one driving error that was tragic doesn't mean that um you can never do that again. And so in the afterlife he was given to drive somebody home. And that kind of made sense to me, you know, because if there was if there was a fear in him that I I'm, I must f- eternally be afraid of this thing, why wouldn't there be a moment where you're just shown you don't need to be afraid of that anymore? True love, Jason, not all fear. And
1: that's all that's consistent with the catechism, which describes what purgatory does as freeing us from unhealthy attachments. And if you have a fear, that's a kind of unhealthy attachment, and you could need to face that fear and get over it, so you're free to move on.
2: I'm trained in and you know Aquinas and Aristotle. That's big you know, Aquinas is is every Dominican goes through lots and lots of training in, in Aquinas. And he distinguishes in fear, but he makes a distinction between servile fear and wariness that I go back to a lot. Servile fear is the kind of fear that a bully tries to instill in you to take away your freedom and put you under their thumb. That's to be avoided because there's no reason for us to believe that we need to give away the freedom that God gave us because somebody wants to make us frightened enough to give it away. Um, and the demonic, you know, in the dark side uh, uh, gangs and the Mexican cartels, uh, they do a lot of that. Um, the The other kind is um, wariness, where when you're in a dangerous circumstance that has real dangers in it, you focus so that you can take all of your skills and use them to best advantage to move through the present danger to safety. Uh, so... That's we are wary at the beginning of the process, and that's why we engage Saint Michael and all the angels and things that we do, because there's reason to believe that this process could go wrong if you weren't careful and wary. But that doesn't mean, mean you need to, you know, be frightened and just wary.
1: Yeah. So we've talked about the sessions. I'd like to ask you some questions of a more theoretical nature now. Okay. Um, and I know some of these are ones that uh, that a lot of people have, and that you've talked about in your books to some extent. We know that there is a sequence in the afterlife. You no know, person dies; they make progress towards God. They have the full experience of heaven. Eventually, they re- they're resurrected. Based on your experience, do souls in the afterlife experience time, like? progressing through that sequence, do they experience that as time the same way we do, or does their sense of time vary in
0: some way?
2: Here's a place where my thinking changed. When I first started this a long time ago, I figured that there must be a one-size-fits-all orientation toward time. I knew that there was uh, progression, that things happen, or succession things happen after other things. But um, what I learned is that Uh, Some people pay a lot of attention to time, as Ray did. He watched his wife for 40 years. Right out of the gate, we were told that this man paid attention to time. And then we had to say to him, and cancer has its own schedule, and you need to hurry. (laughs) We need to hurry you if you really want to greet her when she passes. Others pay almost no attention to it. Uh, Don't you know at least one person who doesn't know what time it is?
1: Oh, I've had times in my own life where I seemed to, time seemed to fly by. I didn't really experience it, and other times it seemed
2: to crawl by. Um, I you know, uh, you, there must be somebody in your life that you that you might want to go to dinner with, but you're not at all confident that they'll actually be there on time. I <laughs> I know of individuals like that, especially in the world of radio. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Well, people, people have uh, in on this plane have different orientations toward time. Mm -hmm. And that happens on the next plane also. And some are casually interested in it. Um, Others are well aware that, uh, for example, uh, getting permission to tell their story has sometimes been because it's so long ago now that they figure nobody, it's not going to open a wound. You know, I died 60 years ago. Most of the people who were around at the time have since died too. I'm just an old photograph. Um, Go ahead and use my story, something like that. There's all kind of uh, dispositions toward time. Why do
1: you think God uh, chooses to involve you and your prayer partners in this work? Uh, Couldn't he do it all himself or have angels and saints do it?
2: Uh, Of course, he could do and probably is. There's um, uh, I just I I think I look at biodiversity as a model. You know how many kinds of ants are there, or flies, you know, or weeds, <laughs> any anything that God created. There's all kinds of variety in a thing that, at first glance, looks like it's just a, a thing, one thing. Uh, well, yes, of course, God can do whatever God wants, but it seems to delight God to help us be interdependently reliant on one another. Even the word religion is from the word rely. Um, and people who have had good experiences of a, a loving religious community learned that they could rely on the people at my church or in my prayer group or my Bible study. Uh, I kind of wish that uh, after we celebrate Independence Day on July 4th, that on July 5th we celebrated Interdependence Day because I think they really are bookends. Mm-hmm. And the fact that God would use me and my prayer partners to do this just seems to be a very natural thing to me, because we're interdependent.
1: It, it certainly seems, I asked the question because I can imagine people asking it, but it certainly seems to me that the answer in your case is a general one that applies to many other areas. I mean, God could do everything. He could he could take care of us. None of us would need to work, but he chooses to associate humans with his work yes. um, in every field of life. And why should it be any different in 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 this field?
2: And you and I follow Jesus, and mm-hmm. you know, in the four Gospels, all of which can be read in a day, they're not that long. Uh, the story of the uh, the miraculous multiplication of food is told six times. The early church really, really wanted people to remember that event or those events. And in each retelling of it, one of the details that's always there is after Jesus does the miracle and turns a little bit into a lot, the next thing he does is he does not say, everybody out of the way, I've got this. He turns to the people around him and says, now feed them. And... And then, after they've all had seconds or has eaten as much as they could, uh, now collect up the leftovers. Um, that just seems to be the divine way that we're we're brought into the activity. And really, in those stories, we're still students, we're disciples. That's the Greek word for student. We're being taught. We're being taught not to rely on God to do everything without us. We're taught the opposite. We're taught to be God's co-workers um, by God's design. Mm
1: -hmm. Now, one of the things you do in the sessions is you lend your voice to either the guardian angel or the soul that needs help. The practice of lending your voice is similar to what psychic mediums do. And some, I want to make sure we understand exactly what's happening in your case. Some mediums who are known as trance mediums say that they are not conscious Mm -hmm. while a spirit is using their voice and that the spirit's like just in control of their body and they don't remember anything. But other mediums essentially report just repeating what they hear a spirit saying. So let's say your loved one is saying this, and then they just repeat it. And others report something that's kind of in between where they're conscious and in control of their bodies but they're letting the spirit use their voice, so to speak. What is your experience like? Is it more like a trance, more like repeating one end of a conversation or something in the middle?
2: I uh, would be more in the middle. The um, I'm not in a trance. I'm absolutely free. And that's important to me. Um, uh, I'm ha- I'm happy to let you borrow my voice, but I'm still going to be here. <laughs> and, and, They move in and it can be people that um, that never learned English and they're a little bit surprised. They've been told in advance, it doesn't matter. These people are English speakers, but it's going to work just fine for you, even though you don't know that language. They'll move in and and a person will say, I'm forming my thoughts as I always did, but they're coming out in English. So There's that. Which Which
1: would suggest they're drawing on your memory of English.
2: They are. And there I, I learned uh, very early on uh, the word was oblate. That's an unusual word. Even a lot of Catholics would not know what oblate is. It's a, 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 person it's a servant,
1: a slave. Yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. Or, or an oblate of uh, um, St. Benedict is a lay person who's not a monk, um, but who is attached to that religious tradition. Uh, well, anyway. Uh, the, the I was watching a friend of mine who had the same gift stu- struggle because the person wanted to use that word and it wasn't in our vocabulary. And the, a person had to find a synonym and it was a hard thing to find a synonym for. <laughs> uh, they And once it's funny, I, you know, I loved words when I was a little kid and I did spelling bees and, and I, I love dictionaries. And so I have a, a larger than normal vocabulary. And people will, and I'm well educated. I've been, I spent, you know, the first thirty years of my life practically in school. Uh, So sometimes people who are not very well educated will come in, and they'll end up using language that they never did before. And they go, "I've never said that before, but it works." Uh, They'll borrow stuff that's inside me, and and then they'll also, um, you know, I, I spent seven years at Stanford as the pastor of the Catholic community. I was in one session where Stanford came up. And the guy was inside me and said, Whoa! And the her prayer partner said, Well, what was that? And he said, Well, at the word Stanford, a whole bunch of parts of him just lit up, like parts of a library, you know, database or something. A whole bunch of Stanford stuff just opened up. And so I've, you know, I've wondered about all this stuff and how it all works. And I'm around a lot of, you know, explorers and scientists that are studying consciousness and, all that. And I have my little contribution to make. I can say, well, here's my experience.
1: And that kind of organic um, tapping of an individual's memory and background to communicate a message is actually similar in some ways to phenomena we see in the Bible, where a prophet, you know, will have his own style, even if God or an angel is speaking through that prophet it still draws on either God or the angel is drawing on the background of the prophet for the communication. So, for example, Isaiah does not sound exactly like Jeremiah or Ezekiel. Yes. You know, they all have their own vocabulary, their own way of saying things. And in a sense, if you're talking, if you're letting a good spirit use your voice, that's not dissimilar to what biblical prophets either in the old or the new Testament would be doing.
2: Yes. And I describe this gift as prophetic speech. You know, I, I try to avoid the words, um, channeling or mediumship just because in my Roman Catholic world, they have, uh, the kind of a toxicity attached to them. Some of it, I think, um, valid and others of it sometimes exaggerated. Um, but you know, we, you and I don't get to change everybody's mind about everything. <laughs> uh, so, but I believe this belongs to the to the gift of prophetic speech. And uh, as I said earlier, my my voice was consecrated to God several times over. I, I and but the very first time that it happened was before I was a Dominican. I was and that story is at the beginning of Book One, being at the Grand Canyon with my friend, and we were both doing this kind of vision quest to seek God's will for our lives. And we, we chose the grand Canyon as our destination, driving from San Antonio all the way to Northern Arizona, praying along the way and camping out and so on. And when we got there and went into prayer, that that's the first time that ever happened. And when it did, I thought um, I, I need to shove myself over to the side so that this can flow. It felt like a flow of energy. Um, um Even the prayer of St. Francis, make me a channel of your piece. Canal is the Spanish for channel. It felt like I need to make myself a contained space so that this can flow through. And I was trying to push myself over to the side. And then at one point, an idiom of mine that was unique to me or characteristic of my speech got in it. And I thought I must be doing it wrong because I'm bleeding over into it was God the Father, greater speaking. And then later, he let me know. He said, Nathan, if I'd wanted you to be a pipe or a wire... Don't you think I could have made you a pipe or a wire? I just want you to be you.
1: So, since you mentioned that experience, um, now that's outside of the work you do with souls, but you did have this experience where you felt you had a message coming from God the Father for your friend, and you uh, you communicated that message, allowing God to speak through you. Uh, And one of the things that you did in communicating that message was you used a name for your friend, that was not the name you knew him by. Yes. It was Milton, if I recall correctly. That's right. Good, good and, 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 and afterwards, your friend
2: revealed to you that that's his actual real name. Yes. And so if... And his baptismal name. He was baptized mm-hmm. Presbyterian, but it was his name at baptism.
1: Uh-huh. So that would be a, a sign of credibility for this experience since you came up with knowledge preternaturally that you did not previously have but that turned out to be veridical it turned out to be true
2: right and it was a great comfort to me at the time i thought i think i did the right thing
1: yeah <laughs> who, who who wouldn't be encouraged by that yeah yeah yeah
2: yeah and it, and we had that was the whole purpose to be there we wanted god to speak to our hearts to guide us and to we were just we had just graduated college the previous week he was on the cusp of becoming engaged or maybe not and his girlfriend uh was asking me is he going to ask me and so he had this big decision to make and he he was thinking he was going to go into seminary but uh, but then he was getting cold feet and i was beginning to feel like maybe i'll do that but i was frightened because it would mean uh celibacy and uh i don't know lions and tigers and bears it just seemed it seemed very frightening at the time but um we, anyway we were out there you know doing this I don't think we use the word vision quest, but we were we were going out into the desert in the biblical way to go and seek God's will for us and when we got to the Grand Canyon and we went into prayer I got quieter and quieter until I'd never been so quiet and then I felt energy rising not from above but from below from the ground uh, from up through my feet and, and legs and it wanted in it wanted to, it was like that you know that old picture of Jesus at some you know, like English cottage knocking at the door. Ever seen that? Yeah. I, it felt like that. Like, would you please let me in? And I thought, well, if you're who I think you are, you can come in, but I'm not sure who you are. <laughs> so I had to do a little discernment on the spot. And I said, I all interiorly, I believe that you are the spirit of the living God and but I need to make sure. And so I'm going to give you to the count of 10 to, uh, say no to me if this if i'm being deceived you've got 10 seconds to make that clear to me and so i counted within and went from 10 down to one and said okay go ahead and and then the whole energy ramped up to what i sometimes call it um unresolved seventh Mm -hmm. in the music scale the land of the free and the home of the That's an unresolved seventh. Mm-hmm. Well, I it, it was this very high vibration that was that I was in, and I just thought, I already gave you the chance to tell me no. Uh so what do you want to say? And then it was like almost like um uh, a banner, like those banners that go underneath um, news channels or a know, ticker. Yeah, a ticker. It felt like a ticker went and said, um, "What do you think I want to say?" And I thought, "Well, what would the first thing God would, if God had the opportunity to talk directly to your heart, what's the first thing God would want to say?" I'm guessing, "I love you." What else could it be? And I, and I was there with my best friend of three years. I'd never. I don't think I ever said. I love you right out loud, but he was the person I loved most in the world. And I, th- and we knew that we were going to, you know, go separate ways. We, we did you know, we'd just done it four years earlier, signing high school yearbooks with friends forever. And now you don't know their address. Uh, and we just didn't want to part that way. We wanted to kind of do, you know, put an exclamation point to the, the gratitude we had for our friendship. And then maybe we keep in touch and maybe we don't. Anyway, uh, I've I had, I opened my eyes and I looked at him and just said, Matt, I love you. And as soon as I did, this whole cascade of energy and words and stuff, and it lasted about 20 minutes. Um, And it was God, the creator, reveling and having created him and reminiscing about doing it. I was an art student originally. And so uh, I I know the joy of of imagining a, a thing in your mind and then collecting the paints or the, materials and trying to get the thing to move from the inner vision to the finished art. And it was like that. He was talking about how delighted he was in the person that Matt w- had become and was becoming. And a lot of it was just thoughts I'd never had before, which again was kind of encouraging or they were deeper or broader or something. And and it went on at some length. I would just, I would just have never done this on my own. and And then there came a point at which he referred to my friend as, Matt is Milton. And I had to make a mental note, but I only had a moment (laughs) because I'm busy. And I I was, and then there began to be a moment where it felt like the crest of a wave. Even this conversation, we're pretty near the end of it, I imagine. Um, uh, Many conversations have a character like that, where you've enjoyed a, a, you know, a glass of wine late at night, but it's bedtime and (laughs) something like that. It just felt like this is on its way out. And then when it did end, you know, we did a little, we'd been sitting on the ground for a long time. We had to, and it, we, it was getting dark and we were on the edge of the Grand Canyon. Not a good idea. Be wandering around in the dark. <laughs> so we just thought we did, you know, we better take this show back to the car. And, uh but I asked him, I said, what was that business about Milton? And that's when he said, oh, that was fifth grade. We were on the playground and some guys just decided to, have a piece of me and tell me that they were teasing him and calling him Milton Bradley, like the the game maker. Uh, And they just were telling him that his name was stupid. And uh, he went home and uh, before dinner, sat in his room and just decided that he needed to rename himself. And then at the dinner table that night, he announced to his family that his name henceforth would be Matt. Matt sounded cool. So that's, it's where I learned that my friend's name was Milton.
1: And that's a that's a remarkable confirmation uh, in this experience, because Milton's not a very common, I mean, most people, you wouldn't guess they have another name that's actually they were born with, and, and Milton's not a particularly common one. Also, no. your experience of perceiving power fill you from the ground is a little bit reminiscent of Moses' experience. Take off your sandals, for the ground on which you're standing is holy in the presence of God.
2: Yeah, and this particular ground, the Grand Canyon, it inspires awe in anybody that looks at it. And It was our first time to see it, and it was so surprising. Have you ever been there before?
1: I have been to the Grand Canyon, and it, it is mind blowing. It hit me like a ton of bricks when I saw it.
2: Well, you, if you approach it from the south, from Flagstaff, um, you you go. Uh, you're, the land is largely flat; it's mesas. And you're it's flat, 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 and you know that you're getting closer because the mileposts tell you so. You know you're 20 miles from the Grand Canyon now, and you can't see it. In the in the American West, you can see 20 miles easy. That in Montana they call it Big Sky for a reason because you can see things a long, far, or far off. But then the Grand Canyon is a hole in the ground, and you can't see a hole in the ground until you are there. And then it is it is gobsmacking when you see it. Absolutely. And we had been gobsmacked. And, uh, and we, you know, we were in awe of this awesome sight. And we sat down to pray, as we did routinely. We did that, you know, twice a day. And, and we, that's what happened. Uh, And neither one of us were told, get get thee to a monastery or so. He wasn't told, go ahead and ask her. We we were not given explicit uh, direction on what to do next. But I've never again wondered if God was paying attention to me. Um, All those mystic saints that have dark nights of the soul, uh, I've been spared it. (laughs) Maybe, Maybe that'll come, but... I've I've had a, a, an abiding sense of God's presence with me, ever since.
1: Now, um, back to uh, your ministry for souls. Now, we talked about what lending your voice to someone is like, but based on similarities to what mediums do, some people might accuse you of performing necromancy. How do you distinguish what you do from necromancy?
2: Well. I have been accused and um, I'm not trying to do anything for private benefit. I'm not asking for tomorrow's lottery numbers, neither am I indulging curiosity. A lot of people dabble in um, paranormal stuff because they're curious. Um, I, um, and I, I, just talking. To people that have died, Jesus did that on the Mount of Transfiguration. You know, uh, both Moses and Elijah had both died and had been dead for quite a long while. If you want to think of it that way, when Jesus spoke with them, uh, it's it's a thing. It's a phenomenon that needn't always be thought evil. And and in the Catholic, one of the things I like about being a Catholic is that we have a mystical tradition, and a lot of it is well recorded. And uh, people have had all kinds of experiences of God, including prophetic speech. Uh, it's just a thing. So.
1: And including talking with souls in purgatory and so forth. Yes. One of the things you point out in your first book is, you know, the term necromancy. I mean, necros means a dead person or a dead body. Mantea means an oracle. And so you're trying to get an oracle from the dead you know for your own benefit you want to know something like what what are the lottery numbers going to be or whatever and that's not what you're doing you're trying to help a
2: soul no it's not and you i on my website i you know people are free to email me if they want to but i i say please don't ask me to deliver messages from your loved ones that's not the way i uh use this gift um i'm and i'm not um I have nothing to do with predicting the future of anything. All I'm doing is what I've written down in my books. I'm helping the people who come to me, and and I and I don't um, kind of take requests, <laughs> you know. I, uh, there there are lots of people that have spiritual disturbances of different kinds and want you know want a priest to help. And I've just had to limit myself to say, I'm sorry, I can't be that. I just am going to stay in my lane and do the thing that I've been given to do. Uh, and I'm busy enough doing that. Yeah.
1: Now, both of your books carry statements of support by your Dominican superior, your prior provincial. Uh, when you and And it's two different prior provincials because they changed between when the books were written. So you're operating with the support of your superiors in your order. Does that mean, though, that they are saying your experiences are definitely true, or are they being supportive in a more
2: general way of what you're doing? Well, their words speak for themselves. Um, um, Mark Pedrez, the first of the two, I knew him when he was a college student, and he he ended up being the second. um, He was the vice president. provincial of the entire order. He just left that post. So he ended up being a huge ecclesial guy. Uh, He just said, Father Nathan has written from his deep experience of prayer, faithfulness to the church, and dedication to his ministry as a priest. He has the profound desire to bring reconciliation and healing to those most in need. So he just did it in two sentences. But the, the thing that's important to me is he knows me, and I knew him as a college student, uh, this the current provincial he and I have lived in community together, you know, in the same house, fixing dinner for each other and <laughs> whatever. Um, they both know me. And sometimes in uh in the internet world, people can have opinions about people they never met because they saw 30 minutes of a a film clip or something, and then have uh sweeping opinions and these guys know me and they trust me. And I believe that that's really the way that ought to function in the church. It's it's best if we can go to original sources. And so far, so good. I'm I, the, the first book came out in 2018, and that's five years ago now, and I'm still here, still doing what I do.
1: In addition to uh, being a Catholic apologist, I'm also a parapsychological researcher. And from a parapsychological perspective, it would be Very interesting to, you know, check records and see if it's possible to verify that the souls you're helping are those of people who, you know, really lived and who really died in the ways indicated. You indicated earlier that you haven't been called to do that kind of investigation at least yet, but have, I wonder, have there ever been cases where a piece of information that you did not previously know popped out in a session that later turned out to be true, kind of like in your initial experience where you learned your best friend's real name was Milton. Has anything similar to that happened in your work with souls?
2: Yes, there's a little, there's, um, remember my rule about I don't tell people stories unless I have their permission. So if I tell a story that I don't have permission to tell, I do it more uh, vaguely. Um, but, Yeah, there's um, there's one that's very dear to me um, that involved a violent death where uh, that uh, was somebody that was very, very uh, peripheral. Someone who I had once met and dined with uh, ended up in this circle. And um, and then there have been a few others. And, and,
1: and, And you did not know the person had died? Is that
2: uh, I did it was made I was made aware of it later um and and um, but that that if we ever went into verification, I have a couple of places where I would start. There are a couple of relationships I have with people that died violently and whom I've been a part of helping, and um you have to start somewhere when you start a new project if I were going to if I felt like I got the green light to go ahead and do verification. And if I at the same time was not directed about where to begin, I'd have to start somewhere, and I have a couple of places I might start and I'm being drawn more into that work this weekend. I'm going to Stanford and Santa Clara to a couple of conferences that are on spirit communication in the in the Catholic tradition and um, uh, and they'll be researchers uh, and on my campus at the University of Arizona, we're a center of a, a lot of that kind of research, but I've not been a research subject. Uh, I've just kind of been on the edges, and I've said to people, "If ever you wanted me to be a part of that, it's something that we could talk about and consider."
1: The there's actually a name in um, in parapsychological literature. If I understand the experience you just described correctly. For that kind of experience, where you learn about somebody's death in a paranormal means, and then it's later verified, that's sometimes called a peak in Darian experience. It's a line from a poem, Um, but if and you'll have cases like near-death experiences where someone will temporarily die and they'll see someone in the afterlife who they didn't know had died, and then they'll come back and learn about it, and that's called a peak in Darian experience, and it's similar to what you're describing where you learned in a dream that this person had died and needed help, and then later it was verified that they had actually died. Yes. One additional question about um, the accuracy of the information that comes through in your ministry. In parapsychological research, we often find that experiences like this contain elements that are accurate, but also some that are not accurate. And it tends to, the hope is in a particular experience, finding information that goes beyond random chance. And something similar is true in the apparition investigations that the church does. For example, The uh, Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith's 1978 guidelines on discerning apparitions, like of Mary and the Saints, you know, indicates they, they aren't supposed to contain theological error, but it acknowledges that the consciousness of the seer may have accidentally slipped in some elements that are not accurate just based on their own background and perceptions or imagination. So, the church doesn't expect even Marian apparitions to be 100% inerrant. Um, What do you think of your experiences? Do you think that they are, would your guess be, since you haven't investigated them, would your guess be that they're 100% accurate or that they may contain some elements that may be coming from your own subconscious or imagination or something like that?
2: I would presume the second that some of it would be contributions that I made uh, I could have not made it had I done things differently. I I, I think I'm more of a pragmatist when this uh, where this is concerned. My primary work is helping the people that came to me, the way I have as a priest my whole life. Secondarily, I believe this is interesting enough that I bothered to record it, make books public, try to leave a good uh, record. I'm um, I've been around scholars my whole life, and I think this could be the proper object of scholarship. Uh, if you wanted to do a dissertation or something, I'm, I'm leaving uh, clean files. Um, I record everything. I, I transcribe. And, I, and my early training was in sociology. That was my undergraduate degree, so it's a social science. In the social sciences, you're taught the discipline of observing data and describing what you saw. That's the first step. If you move beyond that first step to have an opinion about what you saw, you're supposed to label it. You leave the data set clean for another person to come along and have an opinion about it, even though yours is an informed opinion because you put the time in. Uh, and I've done that uh, in my books. And I, I wrote at the beginning of the first one, "I'm not writing a theological book. I'm, I'm recording experiences, and I'm not." Um, I, we have we run our own seminary in Berkeley, and one of our theologians, my first provincial, Mark Pedrez, asked one of our theologians to read it, and uh, he just said, "I don't see anything in here that's contrary to faith," and um, uh, I don't think that was a ringing endorsement of it. He, he just said, "I, I think uh, he's recording experiences, and uh, that there, there's not." Uh, they didn't do what is it a nihil Obstad or do you, are you familiar with the other one? In, yeah, Imprin uh, protest. Are you familiar with that one? Right. Yes. Um, my my provincial said I don't think I I need to do that. I think I'd rather just keep it at the level of a personal endorsement and let that be enough. And that's what they both chosen to do. They could have done otherwise if they wanted to, but each one of them chose to do that.
1: Yeah, the book. The books, because they're recording personal experiences, they wouldn't ordinarily be the type of books that would require an imprimatur, um, since they're not like a seminary textbook or something like that.
2: Right. Well, I knew that I didn't want to just uh, blindside my provincials by writing stuff that they might, uh, you know, be asked to have an opinion about, and so in each and, uh, you know, th- I just started, I just wrote the first chapter of the third book uh, earlier this week, and I feel terrific about that, because when you're an author, you talk about writing and talk about writing, and then when you actually write something, it, it feels uh, great. So I'm I'm, I'm on to the third book in this series right now. In that one, I'm going to subtitle it, Please Let Me Explain, because some of the people are particularly verbal, and the way that they describe things just has such brightness and clarity about it that it just seems like there's some of the stories that stand out in that regard that I'm going to pull together in the third volume.
1: Do you have an estimate of when it may be published?
2: I do. (laughs) And I have a, the editor is my sister and she, we want to be in, we want to be available for sales on November November the 1st. In the publishing industry, everybody says, if you're going to write a book, have it finished by the 1st of November. the Christmas uh, uh, holiday season, it's like everything else. People buy more books in that time of the year than they do other times of the year. So I'm supposed to be finished by September 30th. That's my goal date.
1: Okay. And I, having worked in the publishing industry, it is possible to get a book done that fast and get it get it published that fast, but not typically with one of the big publishers. That requires a that requires a priority.
2: We're, we're still with Amazon. I get these random phone calls from companies that want to uh take my work to a publisher and so on. And I just kind of I just said, thanks, but no, thanks. I'm content with the way this is fl- flowing right now. And if ever one of the major publishers comes calling, that'd be different. But there are these kind of middlemen groups that want to, for a fee, you know, float you out here. And I'm just haven't felt the need.
1: So by November, 2023.
2: Correct. Awesome. I look forward to it. It'll be good. Um, it, it's in the works.
1: Um, just a couple of quick additional questions. How many prayer partners do you have? And are there other people doing the kind of work that you're doing that aren't part of your circle?
2: Um, I don't think I've ever listed my prayer partners, but there might there might have been over these 27 years as many as 20. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are five right now, six maybe that I go to for most of the time. There are a few others that are occasional. If we happen to be together, we know that we could do that, uh, but it's not something that we do frequently. Um, and and the, the, most of them had been Christian. They don't necessarily need to be. They, they just need to be a good listener, a compassionate person, and someone who is not um, enthralled or overly uh, curious or excitable. They need just to be somebody that's helping another human being. And, uh, so they're somewhere around 20, I suppose.
1: Mm-hmm. And do you, are you aware of anyone else who does similar work?
2: They've made other people have made themselves, um, known to me and they're from all over the map as I would expect, because God is all over the map. Remember out of the 8 billion ca- people in the world, 1.4 are Catholic. And so sometimes we can have a kind of grand idea about ourselves that, um, that we rule the world or something like that. There's lots of people out there from other uh, religious and spiritual traditions who do this. And sometimes they ask to compare notes with me and I'll say, you know, I always emphasize the importance of uh, protection prayer. And I'll say, you don't have to be a Catholic or a Christian to borrow this practice. I I can teach them the sign of the cross. It's a prayer of protection. If you use it with that in mind Uh, and how to and Michael the Archangel shows up across Islam and Judaism and Christianity. Um anyway, I uh and then some of them uh I one advice, bit of advice I give to some of them is to have office hours. Um not every not all of these come in a dream. Some people will be fixing dinner and they're at the stove and somebody comes in, you know, or they're in the car or whatever. And I just say, well, if that's the case, uh Decide when you're at your focus best, when you will give this your full attention, and then make that intention known, uh, and it will become known. And then you can control it, and you can say what you will do and what you won't do. I've I've had the benefit of having the guardians always with, and, and my process has been slow, but sometimes people feel like if they have spiritual phenomena happen, that they're being disloyal to God somehow if they say no or not now or Stop it, that that's not disloyal you're you're if you're if you're God's servant uh you God knows that you have other responsibilities than this one, and when you meet God on page one of his book, he's bringing order out of chaos. You don't need to have a chaotic life you can have an orderly one, but it's going to be up to you to order it and
1: Saint Paul stresses God is a god of order, not of disorder,
2: yes, so sometimes they're just uh troubled because. They feel like they now, on top of whatever responsibilities they already had, there's been this extra layer, like somebody just came into their cubicle and dropped a bunch of papers for them to deal with. Uh, It doesn't have to be that way. I just say, the Lord is the Lord of order and and beauty, and and God loves you. And God is uh, a really—I've been employed by the Lord my whole life, and I've had pay stubs to prove it, and he's really a good boss. You'll always be given the resources you need. You won't be asked to do things that are beyond your strength, uh, but you you have to be a partner. You have to speak up and say, I can do this, but not that. Uh, as I said earlier, I get requests through uh, email for, for people that want me to do things that I just have to say, I'm sorry, I'm not able to help you. Not, not that way anyway.
1: So, Father Castle, is there anything else you'd like us to know, and is there anything you'd like to pitch?
2: Um, well, I can be contacted easily through my website, which is my name, Nathan-Castle.com.
1: And we'll have a link to that in the show notes.
2: And uh, if people want to contact me, um, I prefer email. There's a, uh, you know, a contact form. If you hit contact, it'll ask you just a few basic questions and, um, uh, and, I'm a little, I'm falling a little bit behind because of people like you, the more podcasts I do, the more people uh, contact me and want stuff. And, um, one nice thing is that they, they're very often presuming that I'm a busy man and they say, so I'm sure you're busy, but here's my thing. And, I uh, sometimes I'm, I'm I find that I'm having to say you're absolutely right about the busy part. <laughs> I want to at least acknowledge that I received what you have to, to say, and I'll try to be in touch. And, you know, in greater detail. soon. I I'd prefer not to be contacted through Facebook Messenger or um, I know it's t- Facebook Messenger is terrible. Well, mine's been hacked a couple of times. And uh, I just uh, I have an assistant now that reads some of that for me. And we have a little. Def- default thing that says father Nathan prefers to be contacted through his website. Uh, uh, and then, you know, uh, you, you show the, a lot of these end up on YouTube and people have a comment under the YouTube and there just aren't enough hours in the day for me to chase down everybody's everything. I so say, if you really want me to, uh, be uh, in touch with you, use the uh, email on my website. And then Pitching, um, well, uh, the, Over My Shoulder in the Back is my first book. If I get out of the way of it, it's funny because I have to move one way. Yeah. Uh, and it's, Toto it's, 2. And Toto 2, The Wizard of Oz is a Spiritual Adventure, was my first book. Uh, and so any Ozophiles out there, uh, it's it's been much written about, but I believe it's a, a grand story. And then the three Afterlife, the two Afterlife books that are in print, they're also they're on Amazon and they're on all three forms. They're paper um e-reader, and uh, in Audible, which you narrate with your some of your prayer partners. Most of the time, my prayer partners uh, do their own part. And uh, I love that one of my prayer partners has since died, Laura, and I love listening to any of the ones that she does because she's such a love and I get to hear her voice again. Uh, and uh, so anyway, those are the the things. And then if you watch my website and sign up to you know be on an email distribution list, I hope in the next year to be doing some live retreats that went away because of the pandemic, but I'm I'm hoping to do speaking engagements and live retreats as those kind of come back online as different groups start emerging from their COVID practice.
1: Nice to have things back on track, societally speaking.
2: Yeah. uh, I will be speaking at IONS, the International Association for Near Death Studies in uh, Arlington, Virginia, and Metro Washington, D.C. over the Labor Day weekend. IANS, I-A-N-D-S, if that interests you there, even though it's a membership organization, their conference is open to the public. And so if anybody wanted to be around a lot of people with with near death and trans, uh, transformative spiritual experiences, uh, you might find yourself in a milieu of people you enjoy being with. And they may have um,
1: they may have conference videos available after Labor Day as well.
2: Yeah, they all do that. You know, you can sign up for for that kind of thing. Thanks for mentioning that. Father uh, Castle,
1: may we have your priestly blessing.
2: Thank you for asking. I'd be honored. Lord, we love you. We want to love you more. We're grateful for this time together. Please send all of us on to whatever is next on our list. But in the meanwhile, be with us in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. God bless you in your good work.
1: Thank you so much, Father Nathan Castle, uh, for being on Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. All right.
0: So that's what Father Castle had to say about his ministry to souls. Jimmy, is there anything else we should say as part of this week's episode? Just one very small technical note.
1: Uh, there was a slip of the tongue in the interview where it was said that both Moses and Elijah died. Actually, Elijah didn't die. He was directly assumed into heaven, but Moses did die, and that was accurate. It's a very minor thing, but I thought I'd mention it because we've got some very sharp, biblically educated listeners, and they might ask about it if I didn't mention
0: it. Excellent. So, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listeners and viewers?
1: We'll have links to Father Castle's book, Afterlife Interrupted Book 1 and Afterlife Interrupted Book 2. Also, Father Castle's website, his podcast, and his YouTube channel, where he also has a video version of his podcast.
0: Great. So that's it from us this time. What are your theories about Father Nathan Castle and his ministry to souls? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending an email to feedback at mysterious.fm, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, visiting the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com discord or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515.
1: And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work on this episode. You can hire them yourself for your video and animation needs, and you can check out their work by going to my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. While you're there, I'd appreciate it if you hit the like button to tell YouTube's algorithm that other people should see the video that you just watched. And also, I'm trying to grow my channel. So I'd really appreciate it if you'd subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you always get a notification whenever I have a video, whether it's Mysterious World or one of the other videos I put out.
0: So Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about?
1: Next week, we're going into analysis mode, uh, and we're going to look at Father Castle's ministry to souls from the faith and reason perspectives. What should we make of it based on reason? And what should we make of
0: it from the perspective of Catholic faith? So you won't want to miss that. No, you don't. Uh, Folks, be sure to follow Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, your favorite podcast app, or at jimmy's youtube channel where you should make sure to hit the bell to get notifications you'll find links to jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 269 and remember to help us continue to produce the podcast please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Rosary Army, featuring award-winning Catholic podcasts, rosary resources, videos, and the School of Mary online community prayer and learning platform. Learn how to make them, pray them, and give them away while growing in your faith at rosaryarmy.com and schoolofmary.com and by Tim Shevlin's Personal Fitness Training for Catholics, providing spiritual and physical wellness through personalized nutrition workout and prayer programs and daily accountability check-ins learn more by visiting fitcatholics.com until next time jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world thanks dom and once again i'm dom bettinelli thank you for listening to jimmy Aiken's mysterious world on starquest if you've enjoyed Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Star Wars. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash star wars.